Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Dan Diamond, you're leaving us. Jeremy, all good things must come to an end. And, and by that, I mean our weekly check-ins. I don't know what I'll do uh, every Wednesday <laughs> moving forward. <laughs> well, I've got a, uh, a little parting gift for you. Uh, I thought, <laughs> what better way to celebrate you than with a little piece of audio? I'm, I'm emotionally bracing myself for this. You should be. <laughs> Handlebar mustache. <laughs> Politico dispatch. Who's singing? Me. Whose favorite show's The Bachelorette? <laughs> My guest health scoops no one else can get. <laughs> Goodbye, Dan Diamond. <laughs> oh my god <laughs> Talking with him was the best time And He's going to the Washington Post And I think I'm gonna miss him the most So <laughs> Goodbye Dan Diamond Oh my god Oh my god so two things. One, your your talents are clearly wasted producing a podcast and not <laughs> bidding for American Idol. Second, I'm really touched. Thank you. Oh, oh I'm, I'm glad you are. Yeah. So th- that's it. I think we can uh, end the show here. That's as good as we can do. I, I would be fine with that. <laughs> Just play that on repeat for 20 minutes. <laughs> So the House of Representatives has voted to impeach President Trump for a second time. The final vote was 232 in favor. That includes uh, 10 Republicans. Let's listen back in. I'm Jeremy Siegel. This is Politico Dispatch. And today, as President Trump faces impeachment for the second time, Dan Diamond, who's sadly leaving Politico, looks back at how the past four years of the Trump administration, including chaos inside the health department and its response to the coronavirus pandemic, can be traced to the governmental crisis America is facing today. I got an email from someone inside the White House on Wednesday morning saying, essentially, This is not how I thought this was going to end. Mr. Speaker, we are debating this historic measure at an actual crime scene. And we wouldn't be here if it weren't for the president of the United States. We know that we faced enemies of the Constitution. We know we experienced the insurrection that violated the sanctity of the people's capital and attempted to overturn the duly recorded will of the American people. On Wednesday, January 6th, Congress gathered here to fulfill our constitutional duty. But at a rally just a mile and a half down Pennsylvania Avenue, Donald Trump and his allies were stoking the anger of a violent mob. Democrats are going to impeach President Trump again. This doesn't unite the country. There's no way this helps the nation deal with the tragic and terrible events of last week that we all condemn. Is there little time left? Yes. But it is never too late to do the right thing. And I I don't know, Jeremy, I thought some version of this was always plausible, where the nation was facing a crisis, where Democrats desperately wanted him gone, where many congressional Republicans who never liked Trump were rooting for his departure, too. I don't cover justice or 
international diplomacy. So some of the president's offenses that led to previous crises or this one are, are beyond my scope as a health reporter. But I did always try and take Trump's actions on health care seriously. And that goes back to that summer of 2015 when he had announced his run for president. And I wrote a piece at Forbes where I remember I was emailing with a previously unknown spokesperson named Hope Hicks about what Donald Trump believed on healthcare, what he was going to try and do, and why his his bold proclamations didn't match up with reality. And I do think his push from day one to overturn the Affordable Care Act. I will ask Congress to convene a special session so we can repeal and replace. Was cynical and and, and based in untruths or even lies about what he was going to give Americans in return. Obamacare has to be replaced, and we will do it, and we will do it very, very quickly. It is a catastrophe. Tens of millions of Americans depended on the ACA, still depend on it for coverage and for its protections. President Trump never really put in the work to understand it, and Republicans never came up with a plan to adequately replace it. And it was that kind of leadership that I thought predicted so much of of what is to come. And you mentioned you mentioned my favorite TV show The Bachelorette, which it is not, but do, do you do you watch the show Arrested Development? Have you ever seen that show? I do. I do. Yeah, I watched all of it multiple times actually. Amazing TV show. That that one I might put on my short list. But I remember during the ACA repeal fight, this must have been early 2017, I was sitting on my couch at night and and I was thinking about how cynical and shallow the whole Obamacare repeal effort was, how it was based on this lie about what Republicans were going to bring in its place. And it reminded me of the show Arrested Development and specifically how the character Job uh, was promising to build a house really fast. Mm -hmm. This is like an early episode. (laughs) As I told my brother, the president, if we start construction on a second model home, we can be cutting this ribbon within two months. And I said, that's why you're no longer president. Two weeks. Let's do it in two weeks. Hey! So so what they end up doing to spoil the episode, they build like the frame of a house and they hold a whole celebration, <laughs> sort of like a rose garden ceremony, perhaps. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you phase two of the Bluth Company, a house truly solid as a rock. To, to commemorate that this shell house has been built. And for a second, it looks like they're going to pull it all <laughs> off and then the house collapses. And I remember sitting on my couch thinking about that and just tweeted some of that out, and it really blew up. It it got written up by Entertainment Weekly. It got a shout-out in the New York Times. In retrospect, I didn't ask anyone in Politico whether I should do it. But um, <laughs> from from the jump, I, I did think President Trump and his team were putting politics in front of policy and often in front of the American people. So that's a roundabout way of saying that I thought the the Trump administration era was was one where the problems were apparent from the beginning. I guess the surprise is it took until the last week for so many Republicans to willingly turn on him and want him out too. We've talked a bunch on this show about some of the stories you've broken on the pandemic, and we'll link to them in the episode notes here. But I want to talk to you about one story you broke recently that we haven't talked about, because I think it sort of, you know, hints at some of the inner issues in the Trump administration, and even what we're seeing right now with with impeachment and what we saw last week. Um, and I'm just going to read the headline here. And 
I want you to tell me the backstory to it. Um, here's the headline. We want them infected. Trump appointee demanded, quote, herd immunity strategy. Emails reveal. That's just a wild headline. What happened here and what does it tell us about the Trump administration? That email was written by Paul Alexander, the scientific advisor in the HHS public affairs shop, a friend of Michael Caputo, the spokesperson who was installed at the health department by Donald Trump himself. We've talked quite a bit, I think, about Paul Alexander, Michael Caputo on this podcast, but to quickly catch folks up, Caputo was a longtime friend of the president. The president put him in the health department essentially to carry out Trump's message. And Caputo brought in his friend Alexander, who not a doctor himself, but Caputo used him to essentially declare war on the doctors at the CDC and people like Tony Fauci. Sarah Overmall, my colleague at Politico, had gotten some evidence of Paul Alexander bullying Tony Fauci the revered infectious disease expert. Paul Alexander didn't want Fauci to talk about the risks of coronavirus to kids. Now, independently, I was also writing on Alexander. There were a lot of things that Paul Alexander was doing that were raising red flags. And when Sarah got copies of Alexander emailing Tony Fauci, that inspired me to work harder to get copies of my own uh, version of the story, where Paul Alexander was, was pestering and bullying the CDC. Politico's investigation prompted Democrats to open their own probe into Paul Alexander, Caputo, and other officials who might have been involved in political interference. And that email where Alexander was arguing for deliberate infections, saying that that was a strategy to contain COVID, that was an email he sent to senior officials at the health department. Here's one of his emails from July 4th. Paul Alexander sending an email advocating for the government to follow what they call a herd immunity strategy. Quote, infants, kids, teens, young people, young adults, middle-aged with no conditions have zero to little risk. We use them to develop herd. We want them infected. He got a reception from people like Caputo, who didn't shout him down, who wanted, if anything, more evidence for the strategy. He misspells a lot of things, but he got that one actually right. We want them infected. It's a senior advisor at HHS saying, let's get as many kids infected as we can, and the middle-aged too. It was not, Jeremy, from everything I've been able to uncover, it was not the defining strategy of the health department. There's nothing that I see where Alex Azar, the health secretary, took this advice and made it his own. But the fact that this strain of thinking existed in the administration and was tolerated because it was seen to come from allies of Trump, I I think it shows just how dysfunctional the federal government's own attempts to control COVID were, that there were people at the highest levels of government able to make these arguments and have them heard and, and considered. Looking back at all of your coverage of the Trump administration before the pandemic, its response to the pandemic, the controversies and problems within top agencies that you're talking about, how would you say it all has led to the moment we're in today? I mean, not just with the pandemic, but also with impeachment, with the democratic crisis we've seen over the past week. Like, do you see a through line in what you've reported on for Politico over the years? I do. I do. And again, I'm a health reporter. I'm not someone who writes about national security. I'm not a White House reporter. But the federal government has been under assault by many Trump appointees for years. There were efforts by Trump appointees at the health department to roll back protections for patients, federal employees, civil servants, 
tried to stop them, slow them, uh, just giving further credence to the belief by Trump and his supporters that there's a deep state in Washington. There were efforts by Trump appointees to do away with scientific programs. I wrote recently, revisiting earlier disputes, I wrote recently about the effort to end the teen pregnancy prevention program back in 2017. This was a program that seemed to have bipartisan support. There was some evidence that it was working to curb pregnancy among teens, which is a common public health goal. And yet some Trump appointees in the health department really wanted this gone. And there were supporters of the president in the religious community, in the anti-abortion movement, who wanted to see this program done away with too. To get from teen pregnancy prevention to COVID-19 does take a few a few steps, but those sorts of fights that were going on inside the health department wore people down. It drove career officials out. So when COVID-19 arrived a few years later, HHS was more vulnerable than it had been in previous administrations. It had already been through all these battles and frays and fights that left staff not trusting each other, not trusting political appointees, and not always sharing the same vision of what public health should look like. Dan Diamond, thanks so much for for talking to me today and for uh, all the great conversations you've given me over the past few months. It's been a pleasure, pleasure doing this podcast with you, and I am looking forward to listening to you to have your voice in my head for years and years to come. Also today, President-elect Joe Biden's transition team is making a public plea for swift hearings and confirmations for his national security picks, saying that it's critical in light of ongoing threats of violence around the inauguration next week. Security is already being enhanced with plans for more than 20,000 National Guard members to be stationed in Washington, D.C. ahead of the inauguration. The significant measures are being taken after pro-Trump rioters stormed the Capitol last week, disrupting the certification of Biden's Electoral College win. According to a statement from Biden's team, the president-elect will be getting briefed daily to make sure that the transition unfolds smoothly, saying, quote, The incoming team is also focused on laying the groundwork for a smooth handoff in power that will ensure continuous command and control across the homeland security and law enforcement components of the U.S. government. Adding, quote, This is why it's critical that President-elect Biden's national security nominees receive swift hearings and confirmations. And Johnson & Johnson has fallen behind on production of its coronavirus vaccine, a delay that could put it as much as two months behind schedule. That's according to a person briefed on the matter who spoke with Politico. The company had originally pledged to deliver 12 million doses by the end of February, with plans to reach 100 million over the next four months. But the person briefed on the situation says Johnson & Johnson has since warned officials that it could take until the end of April to catch up to its original projections. A Johnson & Johnson spokesperson declined to confirm the delay, but said the company remains confident in their ability to meet their supply commitments. Subscribe to Politico Dispatch wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing and want to help us out, leave a rating and review in your favorite podcast app and tell a friend to give us a listen. I'm Jeremy Siegel. Thanks for listening.